Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. Last week, the quarterly auction for carbon credits hit a remarkable snag. It failed to meet the clearing price. This means that none of the 4.5 million carbon credits on offer were sold. Hmm, Well, that sounds like a mistake. The failed auction was attributed to Cabinet's decision to allow more credits to be issued in an attempt to keep the carbon costs low, and it worked. The carbon price slumped from $90 a tonne to $65 a tonne. Cost of living crisis averted. Thank you, Chris Hipkins. Well, the upshot is that the government has just issued 40 million tonnes of additional carbon, taking us even further away from our climate targets. If you're confused, and I already am, and I wrote that paragraph, uh, then we need Dr. Christina Hood, who has come all the way up to Auckland, I think, by train. I did, yes. From Kapiti. And you um, you tweeted your journey, some lovely pictures of um, New Zealand countryside. Christina Hood is a policy expert in climate change, energy and carbon pricing. She has more than 16 years of experience providing analysis and advice including a former role as the head of the International Energy Agency's Climate Change Unit. Well, that would have been interesting. We'll talk about that if we get a chance. But thanks, Christina. You're welcome. Good to be here. So in addition to travelling by train, you you walked up Queen Street vigorously from your <laughs> breakfast meeting. And yeah, yeah, still sweating slightly, but I think I'm, I'm ready to go. We're ready to go. All right. Well, thanks, Christina. So indulge me. I don't think I'm inc- that stupid, but I do struggle with this carbon auction. I suspect I'm not the only one. I certainly hope I'm not. But let's ask a really simple question first. Was last week's auction unusual or was that business as normal? Uh, It's a bit of both, actually. Um, I mean, the ETS market is just a mechanism in a way. It's not like the mechanism itself has broken. The mechanism you know, comes to an answer looking at supply and demand and the market sentiment of the players in the market. Uh, so, you know, they put all of those things together and decide at what price they're interested in buying units and, you know, whether they want to or not. Yeah. So in this case, uh, there's a number of things going on. Um, I guess to just to wind it back, though, to start with, one thing to understand about the carbon market is that it is just fundamentally a little bit different to other kinds of commodity markets. If you're talking about a wheat market, there are people growing wheat and there's a certain amount of supply that gets influenced by the weather and other things. And then there's a certain amount of demand of people who are wanting to make products from it. And, you know, the supply and demand, you know, gives you some price. There are fundamentals like that in the carbon market in that there's a certain amount of emissions that, that companies that we are all producing by using fossil fuels. And there's a constraint on the supply of these credits, um, NZUs are called New Zealand units, that we need to cover those emissions. So you would say, okay, well, that's some fundamental supply and demand that sets a price. But the one thing that's different is that the constraint is set politically. It's set by government regulation. Mm. We We wouldn't have a market at all if it weren't for the political process saying, no, we have to constrain carbon emissions and we will pass laws and pass regulations to constrain them and then you can trade within that constraint. 
And those units, are in theory, the, the number of units issued should be in line with our emissions targets, right? So the theory would be, let's issue so many credits that will ensure that over time, our net emissions will fall into line with our amb- climate ambitions. Yep, that is exactly the theory. The idea is really, really simple, which mm. is that you decide how many emissions you want to allow and you put out a number of permits that matches up to that and then uh, nobody can emit more than that because there aren't enough permits to cover those emissions. And the the legal obligation is not actually to keep emissions below any particular level. The legal obligation is to hand over one permit corresponding to every tonne of your emissions. So it's the supply of those permits that, that provides the constraint. So that's all very well in theory, but as with many things, the real world is a little bit more complicated than that. So one piece of it is that in the New Zealand ETS, um, trees that remove CO2 from the atmosphere earn credits, and those can be sold to emitters. So mm-hmm. that's that's factored in in the way that the government does the calculations. So they think about, okay, well, here's how many of those permits we expect to come into the market and therefore how much is left over. So, you know, how many more permits should we be providing okay. consistent with the targets? That's the idea. Yeah. But that's, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's some uncertainty around yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, that's not an exact science, <laughs> is it? No, I mean, it's not. And there's, yeah. because of the high prices over the last couple of years, there's actually been a flood of new registrations of forestry land into the ETS. Mm. So there's a, there's definitely a question mark hanging there over how that might affect supply and demand in the market. Yeah. A second piece is that these units are not just for one year. They, they have an unlimited lifetime. So a unit that's not being used can be banked into the future. Right. And in the past phases of the ETS, there were some very loose settings that meant that a big surplus has built up. So companies have in their back pocket a big you know, spare wad of these units right. that they can spend at any time. And because their only obligation, as I said before, is to hand over one permit for every tonne of emissions, they're not actually constrained by this year's ETS cap. They can emit mm-hmm. more than the ETS cap as long as they hand over these extra units. So that's... So that's almost like a liability, isn't it? That needs to be factored in by the government that out there are so many credits... Yeah, and that continues to be a live liability that could be theoretically um, cashed in at any time. It is, and it is actually technically a liability in the crown accounts. Yeah. Interestingly enough, the yeah. financial value of those units. So the um, I, you know I can talk in a second about what's being done about that piece, um, and then the third reason that the supply and demand doesn't necessarily match up to the targets is that there's this safety valve in the system called the cost containment reserve. And that's uh, an extra amount of these units that gets released to the market if the price hits some trigger level that's, you know, considered to be too too high. Um, And too high would be determined politically, not, not by the market, right? The market is is the market. Yeah, the government go the, the government sets sets where that price is. Okay. But the law, the climate change um, climate change response act, um, tells the government what it has to consider when it's making those settings. Right. 
and we can come back to that later. But it's not <laughs> like like the government can't just say, oh, I think $40 is too high, I'll set the price at $40. They actually do have to follow a legal process that is laid okay. out in the law. And in this case, the government decided, Cabinet were considering, as I understand that Cabinet were considering what is the impact of the carbon price or the price of these carbon yeah. units going up mm. above $90, say, and considering that in the context of the cost of living crisis. So you've got this narrative around the country saying food prices are high, fuel prices are high, rents are high. We have a cost of living crisis. All of that creates a context for then their decision about, crikey, is the carbon price going to go up, in which case that would affect the cost of everything, particularly fuel probably. Yeah. So... Rod Carr, the chair of the Climate Change Commission, actually spoke to this in the um, conference that I was at yesterday. Mm -hmm. And I really liked the way he framed it, which is that he said that, uh, you know, even in a cost of living crisis, we need to be continuing to make this low carbon transition. It's going to cost us a lot more in the long term mm. if we slow pedal. We need to just sort of keep that movement forward and keep moving. And he framed it in terms of changing the relative prices of things within the economy, and that's what the ETS does. It does make using fossil fuels more expensive and it makes other things relatively less expensive. Right. And then the government has choices with what it does with the revenue it raises and in terms of it can make, you know, it could make public transport incredibly cheap or free or whatever with some of the money if it wanted to. So. Yeah. So the choices, the government's got a lot of choices, some of which uh, might be inflationary, others are not. But it's much more the whole kind of ETS and how you spend the money is much more about redistribution of costs within the economy than it is about prices going up. It's not like overseas oil prices have gone up and this is um, a net, you know, a, a shock to the New Zealand yeah. economy that puts up all of our prices. This yeah. is an internal redistribution. So it's a... Yeah, I know that's a bit. But like be that as nerd, it may, nerdy economist. No, no. Well, there. that's really yeah. important and relevant. But be that as it may, the decision was to uh, tap into. Now you had this lovely analogy, this sort of um, this secret uh, packet of biscuits yeah, so that the that the, that the market has right for yeah. issuing more units. Yeah. So the so like I said before, companies have got this. Um, stockpile of bank units in their back pocket that they can spend whenever they like and everyone, the Climate Change Commission, the government officials and actually Cabinet's decision were very clear that we need to try and get rid of that a bit so we should actually reduce the amount that we auction so that we get companies to spend some of what's in their, oh, yeah? what's in their back pocket. So mm. they actually said, okay, we're going to hold back a whole bunch of units from auctioning. And then in the very next breath they said oh, but actually we're going to make exactly the same amount of units available to the market at low price because we're worried about the price going up. So sort of just a completely internally consistent kind of a decision. Uh, the Commission had recommended that the cost containment reserve units should be well out of the reach of the market. So the trigger price for them should be quite high. Yeah. Like, and it should really be seen as something, and this was the original intent of it. The original intent of it was something that would very, very rarely get triggered, and it's been triggered 
each of the last two years and then the Cabinet decided to make the trigger setting low at a level that you would expect it would get tr- continue to get triggered every year. So they are right. essentially using that cost containment reserve not as some sort of an emergency thing mm-hmm. but as a, a way of trying to suppress the price. Who's not going to reach for the bickies Yeah, though? well, the, like the analogy is it was, you know, if you have the extra units, the box of chocolate biscuits sitting on the counter where their kids' noses are right in them, they will help themselves, whereas if you shut them up in a box in the top back of the pantry. They're out of sight, out of mm. mind. Um, they're still there, you know, in a biscuit emergency, but um, but less likely to be less likely to be grabbed. What was the consequence of those units being made available, the cost containment uh, units yeah. being made available? So through that decision, by setting that price low, um, I think... I think the problem in the decision-making was that they never looped back to ask the question, okay, well, if we set that price low and release (coughs) extra units to the market to kind of try and hold the price down, each of those extra units that we release to the market allows an extra tonne of emissions. That's what they do, Mm. these units. Mm. So what does that mean for actually meeting our targets, whether the current target or the next budget and our 2050 targets and so on. And that question was never asked in the decision-making. They purely thought, it looks like from the papers, they thought they were taking a decision that was just about price. Mm. And it never looped back to think about what does this mean for our targets. And actually the primary obligation in the legislation when they are making these settings is to accord with the targets. That's actually the overriding thing. Mm-hmm. Price price can be considered, impacts on the economy can be considered, but the main thing is to accord with the targets. So I think that there's a real um, issue there. Uh, the The upshot was that it's it's had a big impact on sentiment within the market. Hmm. So it's not the actual release of the units that's flooded the market because the units haven't come to the market. You know, the auction, this particular auction didn't clear, and it's but it's the prospect of them. They've put them on. They've put the the box of biscuits on the bench and said, "Help yourself." And the markets looked at it and said, "Oh, okay. I thought that car- that these carbon rights were going to be really scarce and difficult and expensive." more and more over time. Mm. And so over the last few years, the market has been um, buying up at every opportunity with the expectation that prices were going to go up because we were serious about climate policy and prices were going to climb. And in my view, and also from talking to people in the market, so yeah, not just me, um, you'll see this in market commentaries that people have written. It was a very... They've allowed the market access to more units than they need, essentially, and it's a real kind of a a concern because people are now questioning, you know, well, are we serious about Mm. these targets? Well, it's lost integrity, hasn't it? Um, And I was thinking of an analogy, um, Christine, and I was thinking it's quite similar to the monetary system when a government prints money and issues too much money that's out of whack with the... GDP of the economy, and that's where inflation comes from. And you like the look. I was just thinking about Argentina the other day. You know, Argentina's got inflation something like running at a hundred percent, 
And it's because they continue to issue currency without it really being in touch with the market. And it completely undermines the integrity of the monetary system and that dollar that used to be worth something and represent the real economy is now completely out of whack with the reality. Yeah, well, we're not there yet. <laughs> it's not not at that extreme. We're talking about. I'm catastrophizing you. We're talking about a margin of yeah extra units that causes right. a problem. It's not you know vast multiples of you know yeah. of, of extra units. Calm but, down. Yeah. But there is a no. But there's an, an interesting. Um, it takes you on an interesting tangent actually because uh, one of the ideas that has been kicking around for quite a long time is whether an independent agency should be doing this more mechanical piece of making the year-to-year ETS settings. Uh, Governments have so far not been that keen on it because they like the idea of being able to meddle with the price. Mm. Um, But it's a little bit like when the electricity market first got re-regulated. There was actually a phase where Mm. Cabinet was having to pass every regulation around the functioning of the electricity market before the electricity authority was set up. And it was just... It was just absurd um, because, you know, Cabinet was being asked to take technical decisions around things that they could not possibly have any hope of of understanding, um, that it really needs you well, know, And that's kind quality. of the point of the market is not, no one individual or organisation knows yeah. all the factors that need to be considered to make yeah. a price decision. Yeah, and, and in the now that we have – we've got this overarching framework where we have emissions budgets that are set politically, mm. and that's, I think, fair because it is a – a trade-off around, you know, how fast are we willing to move as a country. Yeah. But once those budgets are set, I don't see any reason why the ETS permit supply to line up with those targets couldn't be done in a more mechanical way by an independent agency, and that would get rid of a load of these problems. So my catastrophe scenario just parked for a minute. Uh, What's the consequences of this decision can the market recover and you know ultimately from a climate point of view we want that carbon price to go up don't we because we really want to incentivize the right kind of behavior the right kind of investment so what are the longer term consequences of this um, market failure last week so it's not um, you know as dramatic I don't think as maybe some people are painting it to be because Mm. it's what it is is that there's a there is a confidential reserve price in the market and that it's something, it will be some sort of a formula to do with the prices over which the market has been trading over the last, you know, days, weeks, months. You know, we don't know because it's confidential. But the idea is that the government doesn't want to sell at auction units at a price that's much lower than has been the prevailing price in the market because that would just be financially dumb. Mm. And so there's this confidential reserve. And so it's the um, that that's what happened in this auction is that that confidential reserve was not met. So it's more probably more a reflection of the fact that the, the market price was dropping over the last little while. Um, and all of those units that didn't get sold get rolled over into the next auction. Right. And there are three more auctions this year. Mm-hmm. In terms of, so it's really unknown, you know, what supply and demand is going to be. There is also, it's not just about, you know, cabinets, politics and cost of living. There's also fundamentals in there. So like I said before, over the last couple of years, companies have been taking a view that the price was going to go up and supply was going to tighten Mm. and they have been buying up 
at every opportunity. And um, I mean, I'm told that there are a lot of companies who've bought up a number of years' worth of their obligations already because they were expecting prices to go up and up. So they're actually quite well supplied and don't need to buy right now. Yeah. So there's also a dynamic there of, you know, do people actually need the units right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, I, I don't think people know where it's going to go. Mm. Like I say, there is in this market the political constraint around are we serious about constraining supply to meet targets is a big factor and, you know, let's let's see what, what's how those signals change but um, at the moment the market is kind of judging them on their actions of where they've actually yeah. made the settings rather than words around you know how great we are on, on climate I mean there's and there's a bigger context here than the cost of living crisis there's also the election coming up and I, I know you're not into politics but you're a, you're an, a market analyst but is your sense that the Nats or a centre-right government, should that come to fruition, would they continue with this framework with the um, with the carbon market and and the units? Uh, you know, is, it, is it too now kind of in place to be messed around with? Yeah, I, I, I don't think there's going to be a lot of political change around this at all. Um, the National Party have said that they are fully committed to meeting the emissions budgets and out. And our international Paris Agreement targets, mm. they have said that they would prefer to have more emphasis on the market mechanisms like the ETS and less emphasis on additional policies. Yeah. So um, that does create a bit of a headache for them because of all those things I mentioned before about how the ETS doesn't actually quite line up with delivering the targets. So they've got... Um, some work to do there and they would have to, if they really are serious about using the ETS as the main tool, they are going to have to be willing to allow the price to rise. That's just how market mechanisms work. And well, so that will be the test. I mean, it's kind of interesting that centre-right governments on the whole have favoured mm. a carbon tax, haven't they? That has been a mechanism that, um, I mean, unfortunately Abbott got rid of it in Australia, but that was the has been the mechanism in the States and in um and in Australia, that was put forward by um, as a as a tool for managing, uh, and you know the people like Eric Crampton are saying that actually the ETS is probably the tool for managing emissions. Yeah, I um, I, I don't know about Australia. They've had just about every type of policy <laughs> that's true. put forward and shot down over the years, and and they are on the verge of finally getting something through, which is actually a kind of emissions trading that they're going to have for their biggest companies, right. which is um, pretty interesting. And it, um, interestingly, it will treat their biggest emitters more uh, stringently than our ones are treated in our ETS. They, um, so that's a that's a different story The Aussies do love day. beating themselves up. They're, they're very good at that. I want to change the topic a little. Um, the I was thinking of um, what is it about... Um, the cost of living crisis and perceiving this change to a greener economy, to a low emissions economy, it's its always portrayed as a cost. And there's, there's the framework is, is usually, the discussion is usually framed in terms of um, um, 
you, you know, I just take an example, for instance, the, the cash for clunkers scheme that has been um, scrapped by the government is, is seen as being too costly for the country. And that framing means that the opportunity side of things, the upside, is never really articulated or understood. I was trying to think of, a, of an analogy, Christine, and I, you know, I'm old enough to remember the dot-com boom and, and the digital revolution, which was always framed as an opportunity, never as a cost. I mean, it cost a lot. It cost the country a lot to build out UFB. It cost companies a lot to shift to digital technologies. It costs us a lot to buy these infernal devices. Um, but we buy, we overcome that cost because we see the opportunity. Do you have a thought or uh, an explanation as to why a shift to a lower emissions economy is never portrayed as an opportunity and, and it's more portrayed as a cost? Yeah, um it, it is a really big problem in, the, in getting people on board and understanding what's happening. A lot of the things that people talk about as costs are not even costs. They're actually investments. So they are upfront. You have to spend more money on something and then you get a payoff over time. Mm. So it is actually a financially sensible thing to do. Mm. A lot of these policies around... Uh, the, the thing about low carbon technologies and systems and, you know, low carbon transport systems and all of these things is that they take a big upfront investment and you do have to find the money to do it. Mm. But then the benefit of it over the longer term is, is massive. So um, I am, you know, fortunate enough to have, um, you know, come back overseas with overseas earnings and we invested in our house uh, for example, and, um, you know, double glazing and insulation and mm -hmm. solar battery system and we have an EV and so on. And now our power bills are next to nothing, you know, including running our cars off the, you know, off the solar and so yeah. on. So, yeah. you know, we don't pay very much. We're like, I, um, and it's, it's nicer, you know, we have heat pump, central heating and all of these wonderful things and so on, but it costs, you have to have the money to invest up front. And so the constraint um, when people talk about costs is about finding that way to find the investment money up front mm. uh, and doing that at a societal level so that we do make sensible decisions about the longer term and actually fund the, these things that are going to be better, you know. A cities where we don't have tailpipe emissions from vehicles, it's just going to be better. All of that traffic congestion, all of that, you know, it's... Have we failed as a movement? I'm saying us here as kind of climate activists or, um, you know, climate and campaigners. Have, have we failed to articulate what that, <laughs> what those improvements are? Is that the problem, that we are not painting a rosy enough picture so that they, those capital costs, those initial kind of hurdles, are, are not seen in the context correctly. And so they all all people see as the short-term cost. Yeah, I think that's a big piece of it. Um, not blaming, you know, the environmental movement. I think it's it's all of us, it's politics. It's And it comes from, I think, the way that the world's response to climate has evolved. So... The response to climate change did start out as a very kind of incrementalist 
thing. So when you go back to, you know, the, the 90s and the Kyoto Protocol and so on, it was just, okay, we need to make a small incremental reduction over this five-year time period. Mm. And so it really was a um, kind of a framing that was about a reduction and it was a framing that was incrementalist. With Because we could afford to do incremental change, right? Yeah, well... The, the, the carbon debt wasn't and so great. Uh, and the technological solutions were really expensive too, to mm-hmm. be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, so the I think the idea of throwing out there, you know, the complete low-carbon, you know, zero-carbon society, the idea was certainly there, but I don't think people in the, the mainstream political level would have taken it seriously mm. and it wasn't until um you know 2008-9 and you know the crashing of solar pv prices and so on that people really and mm. ev electric vehicle prices starting to come down that people at the political level really did start to say oh hang on actually this isn't some hypothetical calculated scenario this can actually happen in the yeah. real world i think there was a different kind of engagement but We've moved from that kind of uh, incrementalist how do you get a small reduction type thinking to supposedly under the Paris Agreement an idea where we do have to be net zero and then you can take different frames on that. You can can think of that in a a reduction constraint framing of saying that means we have to cut our emissions and that's – the natural framing when you talk about an emissions trading system, yeah, because that is what it does. It cuts emissions, you know, and but and but cutting the emissions is not enough because we have to have something to replace all of those emitting things in our economy. Mm. So we have to, at the same time as we are cutting the emitting stuff out of our economy, we need to be building whatever this zero carbon society is that Mm. we are going to need for the future and that's the exciting part and that's the part that um, we don't talk about enough and it's where there's policy disagreement because um, you know for the people more on the right they would say that the constraint of reducing emissions is enough because the the wisdom of the market and entrepreneurialism and so on will naturally come in and fill this gap and build all of these alternatives that we need Mm. and um, others I guess me included and most international agencies would say no look this the pace and scale of change particularly around things like infrastructure mean that we need a lot more focus and direction and really be thinking about you know not where do we get our next 10% reduction from how do we meet the next carbon budget but what does a zero emissions society look like Mm. and how do we build that? And what role of the state as uh, a sort of fundamental infrastructure provider play in that, particularly around um, guaranteeing, um, you know, stable markets? And I think a a couple of nice analogies that the UFB rollout is a really good example. The the role of the state um, through um, providing a base for uh, service providers to come on top of that meant that we got an incredibly efficient rollout internationally of of, of um, optical fibre. And um, and now it's really hard to imagine going back, isn't it? It's hard if someone said, 
there's a great future in copper. We will be fine. They would get laughed out of the room. It, it feels like we're at that kind of moment, but I, I just I can't see us getting past it because we yeah. are always still saying the equivalent of the copper, you know, the ADSL is fine. You know, what do we what do we need to get rid of the ADSL? We could have VDSL, uh, if you like. That would be even faster. And um, another kind of anecdote is I work with um, the Climate Venture Capital Fund and if it was just up to capitalism, uh, you would think that a fund like that would be swamped with investment because we've got incredible companies that have in- incredible uh, you know, future prospects for their low emissions tech. We, we've been successful. We brought in $12 million for our first round, but that's pretty small compared to what we're seeing internationally where billions of dollars is being invested in clean tech and low emissions technology. So I think you're right that you know if it was just left to the market, we will continue to make these sort of incremental changes. There needs to be these step changes to create networks, to create basic infrastructure, and I think, think about charging networks that have to roll out over the yeah. country, whether they're hydrogen or EVs. No, exactly. And it's the difference between, you know, we can meet a net zero target in a lot of different ways. So you can meet it in, in bad ways in that we just keep pushing up energy prices until people are forced to stop driving and, you know, consume less. And, like, you can do it through pain, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can... In, Collectively, as a society, we can choose to invest in things that make the transition easy and good and build something better, and that's where the justification for the, you know, the government side of it is. So it's not, you know, to, to answer some of the critique of the right-wingers who say, the, you know, that the ETS does everything. Mm. It's, it's, not, it's not that you get more emission reductions by doing a lot of these extra policies and interventions. It's that you do it in a better way, That's that you just get a better outcome for society. It's at a lower price because you've provided alternatives. Yeah. It's like it's one thing to say just keep pushing up the price of petrol uh, until people have to respond, but if they don't have alternatives, they can't respond. Sure. It's like you need... EVs in the second-hand market so they can go and buy one. You need public transport that's accessible and convenient. Protected cycleways. To ways. them. And, you know, all of these things, then when the, then when you push the price of petrol up, people will go, oh, okay, well, I'll do that instead. It's carrot and stick, isn't it? Um, in the little bit of time that we've got remaining, um, how does New Zealand compare to what you were seeing internationally? I mean, uh, I mean, we, we've expressed a lot of frustration this morning with where we're at and it could be faster. Uh, is that reflected internationally? Are we, are we just keeping up with the other useless countries? Uh, we're probably, you know, middle of the pack, to be honest. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not a leader by any stretch. Um, we talk a big game, but we're not following through, mm. uh, I would say. Mm. And one one area that we're really not following through is actually our international target. So New Zealand has um, a target under the Paris Agreement that is more ambitious than the domestic targets that have been put in legislation. Yeah. It was always um, intended, like ever since uh, it was first signed up to 
back in 2015 under the previous government that there would be a combination of reductions in New Zealand and cooperation with other countries to meet that. And there's been a you know, resounding silence from the government around what they're actually doing to get on with honouring that. And I think, and there is starting to, it worries me because there is starting to be noise around, oh, that's kind of expensive, maybe we mm. don't need to do that part, maybe we should just focus on only our domestic part. But we are, you know, it's the flip side of this, we are a small nation and a small emitter. We are incredibly exposed to what other countries do or don't do. Right. right? We are utterly reliant on what China and India and the US and Indonesia choose to do. So where is our leverage on that? Mm. You know, how can we influence them to act? Because we need them to act. And part of it is um, us honouring our own commitments. If countries like New Zealand start to backtrack and walk away and say, oh, we're not going to do this after all, why on earth would we expect them to? And then we are really If really New Zealand travel, nobody can. Yeah, we are. I mean, despite, you know, cost of living crisis, relatively speaking to most countries in the world, we are a rich country. Uh, I could keep talking to you for a long time. Thanks, Christina Hood, for um, joining us on the show. That's OK. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. If you like the show, please rate us as it helps others to find us. Ka kiti anō.